Hey, podcast listeners, the Crown Refs Mentor Program and community just recently celebrated our two-year anniversary, and Patreon's been busy making their platform even better, and we're thrilled to share with you these updates. Patreon now has a collections tab, which features quick and easy access to our entire catalog, which includes over 25 of our exclusive shows and series, like Signal School, Rapid Responses, Guest Speakers, Crown Classics, Game Notes, Verbal Judo, The Wonderful Women of Officiating, The Sunday Swish, The CR Vlog, and Rule Resources, just to name a few. Not sure which tier is right for you? Our updated Crown Refs page has got you covered with a clear breakdown of each tier's offerings. And there's more. Patreon is now offering free seven-day trials to give you a delicious taste test of what's cooking inside of our Ref Kitchen. You can check out the reimagined Patreon app complete with community chats. Plus, we're introducing a new shop tab where you can grab individual episodes, exclusive instructional how-to videos, PDFs, pregame cards, whether you're a Patreon member or not. If our content has brought you any value in the past, we are kindly asking that you please consider joining the Crown Refs Mentor Program and Community for Officials. As soon as you sign up, I will personally send you a welcome email so then you can get access to our 36 Discord community channels. You can go to patreon.com backslash crown refs or click the link in this episode to come explore the future of Crown Refs on Patreon. I can't wait to work with you and introduce you to our incredible community. You're amazing. This is Hall of Fame boxing referee, Kenny Bayless. Thank you for listening to the Crown Refs Podcast. Serve the game. Thank you for listening to the Crown Refs Podcast. The audio experience for basketball officials. Serve the game. Born and raised in Berkeley, California, which is uh, Berkeley is up near San Francisco. Um, uh, my, uh, I have a twin brother. For those that don't know, but um, there were uh, uh, siblings. I have uh, two brothers: my twin brother and my older brother. Uh, he was uh, like three and a half, four years older than, than me and my twin. And my mom raises, my dad had passed away when I, when we were at a very young age. So I actually uh, grew up with, without a dad. And, um, uh, you know, life was, 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 was pretty simple. My mom, uh, and, uh, we had a, uh, a, a, an, an upbringing. Uh, my mom was very disciplined with, with three sons. We uh, growing up in the you know 50s 60s, and and uh, she uh, she was old school. I mean, we didn't do anything that that uh, that that showed that we was was misbehaving. Uh, uh, she get the belt out or the switch out or whatever choice of weapon she wanted, and she would straighten us out, and that was probably the, the the best thing for us. Uh, my mom was very religious. She grew up, she raised us and, and, and uh, brought us up in the church, which I'm very thankful that she did because with the, the struggles that we had to deal with back then, uh, it was always good that, that we knew that the man above was watching over us. So anyway, um, when it came to sports back then, 
Um, uh, the, the only sport that my mom did not want us doing growing up was football because she thought it was too physical, uh, 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 which we didn't. But by the time I got to college, uh, me and my twin brother ran track. Uh, we, we, we did pretty good. My brother was a three-time All-American in the 400 meters, and I was a one-time All-American in the uh, four-by-four relay. Um, upon moving to Las Vegas, um, I had no, uh, well, I grew up uh, uh, back then watching Muhammad Ali uh, on my mom's old black and white television. And, and so when I moved to Las Vegas, uh, uh, being that I was recruited to come there to teach school, um, um, I, I moved to Las Vegas in uh, 72, August of 72, and, and in February of 73, Muhammad Ali came to Las Vegas to fight a guy by the name of Joe Bugner. And I was uh, standing out in front of the convention center the night of the fight with my cousin, uh, just watching the movie stars and, and all the celebrities uh, going to the fight. And from behind me, a dear friend walked up, uh, 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 who later I found out had ties with George Foreman. And he walked up to me and he says, Kenny, what are you doing here in Vegas? And I said, I live here now. He said to me, the next thing he said to me was, do you have a ticket to the fight? And I said, no. And he opened up his sports jacket, reached into his inside pocket, pulled out and gave me two tickets, which I gave one to my cousin. And the next thing I knew, we were in the fight chanting Ali and that was the turnout for me in boxing. It, it just literally turned me out, the excitement, the thrill, seeing Ali for the first time. And, and um, um, at, from that point on, Paul, I went to every boxing fight show in Las Vegas. Now, could I afford it? No, I couldn't afford it. So I was finding the back door the the a crack in the wall, whatever it took to get into the fights. And I, I did that up to the point, and I'm talking three or four years, that I wanted to find a better suitable way of getting into the fight. So what did I do? I figured if I was a part of the sport, it would be easier for me to do that. But I, yet I didn't know anything about the sport. So I decided from just looking at all the particulars, the judging boxing would be the easiest thing to do. I mean, how difficult could it be? You sit there for three minutes around and you score it. So I got involved into the amateur golden gloves and they start you out at the basics and they work you through the ranks. And as I was uh, working my way uh, through the ranks and getting better, I would still go to the amateur shows. And when I went to the amateur shows, I would judge the, the, the professionals just like I judged the amateurs. And as I was judging one of the professional shows, I would take my score and I would compare it with a professional judge. And that professional judge said to me when I uh, uh, had asked him repeatedly over and over about my scores, he says, hey, you look to be in pretty good shape. Why don't you try refereeing? 
And I thought about it and I said, no, 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 I don't want to get in the ring with those guys. I'd rather be on the outside of the ring. But then after a while, I thought about it and I says, well, why not give it a try? What do I have to lose? So um, I asked uh, a prominent referee who be later became my mentor, Richard Steele. He took me to the Golden Gloves gym, got me in the ring, started getting me to move around, uh, uh, started teaching me the art of what to look for, uh, how to use my, my vision to my advantage. And uh, another several years of now judging and refereeing, I eventually got appointed to be a referee with the Nevada State Athletic Commission. That is a tremendous story of a kid just finding like his passion out of nowhere and then devoting his life to try to get closer to it. So the first couple of years, you were just a straight boxing enthusiast and you just wanted, you were just finding ways in and that led you to judging, which eventually led you to being a referee. Yeah. Um, that was tremendous. You know, this has been this has been a great week uh, for for Crown Refs, kind of like a milestone week because you know we're a basketball community, basketball officiating community. But we just had our first hockey official join earlier in the week. Then we just had a soccer and multi sport, you know, softball, baseball official join, and then of course we're here with you now, a boxing referee. So there's such a universal language, right, to officiating. Um, my question for you is, what do you think are some of the most transferable skills that would apply to any official in any sport on how to, you know, just grow their game, move up and, and improve? Their ability, uh, Paul, to, to visually see what happens and then very quickly from training, uh, um, be able to, 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 to diagnose it and make the call. The visual is the key thing to officiating any sport. And, and um, um, you know, with technology today, you got instant replay and you can always go back to the instant replay especially on questionable calls or close calls. But as an official, you want to get it right. That's the key. And, and what I used to do, um, Paul, is I used to train my eyes as to what I saw so that I could make the call right then and right there. And people would ask me, well, well how, how do you train your eyes? Um, when I was coming up through the ranks, you know, they have the old saying, the, 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 the couch potato athlete that sits on the couch and watch a football game or basketball game and they may have some knowledge to it, and they would say how they would have went for the layup or took a jumper or whatever the case may be. For me, it's like a couch potato looking at how 
a football game is being officiated. When that quarterback throws that ball in the air, I'm only limited to see what television allows me to see. But I'm going to make a call, right or wrong, if it's pass interference or if it's not pass interference or if the offensive uh, uh, or the defensive offensive line uh, moved before the ball is snapped or in the NBA when the when the uh, when uh, Steph Curry took a shot was his foot on the line or was it off on the line now when I'm watching a sporting event I put myself in the position as the official to see how many calls I'm getting right are getting wrong. And because I'm sitting in the luxury of my own home, if I miss the call, I work to get that call right the next time. And that's how you train your eye to what you see. In, in, in boxing, a fighter throws a blow and it's borderline on the belt. Is it a low blow or if it's not? I have to make that decision right then. I can't call timeout and go over and look at the monitor to see if I'm correct or not on the call I made. I have to make that call right then, right now. Just like that that NBA official, if it's a foul, they have to blow that whistle right now, right here, right now. You don't have time to debate it. And um, so for me, training the eye to what you see is 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 the key because we have to know what we're looking at in order to make the right call. This episode of the Crown Refs podcast is brought to you by RefereeStore.com. To save 15% on all United Attire products, enter Crown15 at checkout. We hope you enjoy this episode and do us one last favor before you listen. Have a great rest of your day. It's such a simple point, but it's never the first step when we talk about what are the skills that you need. It, it, the optics, the eyes, the, 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 to be able to visualize and then make that immediate decision and have that reaction or response to it. Um, Talk to me about just position adjusting, because that's a term we use a lot in officiating, but, and in all sports, most sports referees are moving to improve their angle in order to get the calls correct. In boxing, it's constant and it's, um, you know, around the ring on all different sides. So talk to me about how you get the intuition with the fighters to know kind of where to move. And just talk about that, that intuition to kind of know where to be and know where your eye should be. Right. Well, movement is 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 uh has been a a, a very key uh, uh component for me, movement. Uh, and when I uh got started uh back in the amateurs, um Paul, I, I I used to go to the to the gym and get in the ring uh by myself and just move just move around to the point to where I was comfortable because you're right. You have to be in position 
to visually make the right call. If you're not in position, you can miss the call. And and um, so that was something that, that I did a whole lot of. Um, uh, I didn't have a problem uh, getting there because from my track background, uh, 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 running track, uh, speed and quickness was was something, depending upon the race that you had, you had to have. Um, but but making sure that you're turning in the right direction in reference to the direction that the fighters are moving in uh, 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 makes all the, the, the difference in the world. And, and when two fighters are in the ring, one of the things that I have to pick up on is their styles. And in their styles, how is that going to direct the flow of what they're doing. And I have to pick up on that. And and, and, and in a sense, uh, uh, do the opposite of the direction that they're going in so that I'm in position to make the right call as to, 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 to what I see. So uh, what allows us to, to, to be in the position to make the right call is being in condition and 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 being in shape, and um, uh, uh, that's never been a problem for me throughout my career because of my track background. Um, uh, uh, back in the day when I was in college, interval training, uh, cross country training, uh, I used to do all that. So um, um, uh, not being in shape was never an issue for me. I was always uh, uh, in shape and uh, we had to, for the sake of uh, not knowing if I'm gonna be in the ring with some guys that are 120 pounds, as opposed to uh, uh, two weeks later, I'm doing heavyweights, uh, for an example, uh, the, 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 the heaviest fighters that I've ever, a uh, uh, referee was uh, Tyson Fury, who they said was probably around 270 when he fought uh, Deontay Wilder, who they uh, estimate was around 240 the night of the fight. So you're talking about combined weight of over 510, give or take pounds. So I'm 180 pounds soaking wet, but yet I have to maneuver those guys and separate those guys and do my job to make sure that that fight is is uh, is going to my expectations. So positioning plays a very key part in 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 my movement, so that I can be in the right spot at the right time to separate them, not physically uh, 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 trying to wrestle with them because that's not the the, the part of, of, of what we're doing uh, because them listening to our commands plays a part but but being in position as well as well as uh, the the visual sight of of, of seeing plays a, a, a part one aids and helps the other 
my brother's a big fight fan. So I text him and I said, Hey, I, I have Kenny Bayless coming on. I know you know who that is. And uh, I said, I need some questions for him. So some of these questions are inspired by my brother. So thank you, Christopher, for this. Um, let's stay with uh, that last fight. Given that you refereed uh, Fury versus Wilder too, where Wilder's corner threw in the towel in the seventh, how close were you to stopping that fight before his uh, corner threw in the towel? I was, uh, uh, the thought had entered my, my mind. And the thought had entered my mind because of the 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 shots that um, Deontay Wilder was taking, and and I know in Deontay Wilder's uh, career, uh, he doesn't take too many shots. Um, uh, he stalks his opponents. He stalks them and look for the big right hand. And uh, up until that fight, he has been very successful. So the first time, which was the second fight, which I refereed, I could see that he was taking more shots than the, he normally took in a fight. So uh, one of the opportunities that I have when the bell ring is to go into his corner and check him out which I did uh, 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 on a couple of occasions, the doctor got in the ring. So I'm conversing with the doctor as well as doing a visual sight of looking at the condition that he, that he was in. And um, uh, there was a concern when, when we saw blood, uh, which I thought was coming from the ear, ear canal uh, but the, the fight doctor uh, 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 cleared that up, that it was the, the ear lobe that had got split and it was bleeding. And from the contact that Deontay Wilder was taking, it appeared that it was coming from the ear canal. It was coming from the ear lobe. But, but yes, I as time wore on, I was getting closer to looking for the right opportunity to stop the fight. Um, but at the same time, there was discussion in Deontay Wilder's uh, corner as far as uh, stopping it. And, and then Mark Breland uh, made the choice to throw in the towel, which, which I thought was the, 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 the right call to make because um, there, there's a saying that, that we use uh, in, in uh, the sport of boxing is that we can let a fighter swim out to deep water, but we can't let him drown out there. And um, so when Mark Greenland stopped it, it was a good call in my opinion, because it wasn't going to take much more uh, time for me to see how much more he was going to take before I had to stop it. Speaking of sayings, you have a famous uh, catchphrase, uh, what I say you must obey, which is quite famous. How did you come up with that? And what does that signify to you? Um, my, my middle son, uh, uh, Kenny Jr. Um, uh, was the one that 
that got me on the path to having a saying because I was not interested in, in, in a saying and he was the one that kept nagging me about it. And, uh, you know, I'm a retired school teacher from 35 years and I was a disciplinarian. And he said to me, he, he brought the phase up uh, first. I say it and you obey it. And, and I said to him, well, that's hitting a little hard. Now, normally what we would normally say, uh, referees would say, would say is obey my commands at all times. And so from what he said, I just changed it, just put a little twist on it to what I say you must obey. And uh, it caught on. Hey, you're a fellow uh, phys ed teacher, and and listen, you're you're branding yourself right there, right? You're putting out uh, content. You got quite the platform, you know, before these fights. So, yeah. Um, could you share some facts with us about what it was like to referee the fight of the century between uh, Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao? That fight for me, Paul, was um, kind of like. The, the the icing on the cake. And, and, and the reason why I say that is because um, as, as I came through the ranks as a, a referee, uh, it, it wasn't easy. Um, I, I uh, had my challenges. Um, and when um, I got uh, selected to, to do the, 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 the Pacquiao Mayweather fight, um, the the fact that it it was a a, a fight that fight fans had, had waited some time for, but um, for this fight to be labeled the fight of the century, that's what made it special. Because um, in if one was to say the modern era, the only other fight prior to Mayweather Pacquiao, which was labeled the fight of the century, was when Muhammad Ali fought Joe Frazier, the first fight. That fight was labeled the fight of the century. So it, it was an honor for me to get that fight. And through all the trials and tribulations that I had, had, had gone through uh, up to that point, to, to get that fight was was special. Now I had refereed uh, Floyd Mayweather uh, a few times, as well as Manny Pacquiao. Uh, both fighters are clean fighters. I, I knew that, that there wasn't going to be any uh, issues or problems of doing that fight. Uh, for me, it was just enjoy the moment, and 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 that's what I did between meeting Denzel Washington and Shaquille O'Neal and Charles Barkley and all the celebrities that were there that night. I just enjoyed the moment. It was special. Could you share your journey as a cancer survivor and how it has impacted your life and your career? Uh, yeah, when, when every year, Judges and referees have to relicense um, because 
though we work for the state of Nevada, we're still independent contractors. And every year I have to go get a physical and have to get an eye exam. Judges only have to get an eye exam. And I went for my normal physical and um, everything was, was, was checked out okay. And um, the doctor um, said, well, why don't we just, well, they checked my prostate. That's where my cancer was. And uh, they wanted to do, to, you know, just take it a, a step further because uh, he checked my prostate and it appeared to be fine. But, but when, they, when I went and, and had further tests done, that's when they saw that there were cancer cells on my prostate. And I went and got a second opinion and, and, and uh, the, the, the biggest uh, uh, key for me when it, when it came to a, a cancer, I mean, it hit me hard because I was in perfectly good health. Um, um, but um, my wife is a wellness coach and, and health educator and had been for a few years. And um, uh, she, she kept telling me that I was going to beat it. And, and one of the things I uh, did was change my diet, um, which helped tremendously. Um, it was difficult changing my diet and eating a, a healthier diet. Um, um, my uh, PS, PSA numbers were had elevated, and when I went back to see my my uh, primary physician, um, my numbers started to drop and lower. But that was uh, coming up in almost a year, about ten months, and. Um, I, I made the decision to go ahead and ha have my prostate removed because um, um, it, it, it was tough. With that diet, it was tough. And, and um, so when I had the surgery, it was successful. Um, the cancer did not get outside the cancer wall. Um, every, every, everything um, um, was a hundred percent success in the surgery. So, um, yeah, I was thankful and blessed for that. Amen, brother. God bless. It's amazing. You know, we talk about um, pressures with officiating. Could you describe maybe the most pressure you've ever felt before a fight and? Um, how you managed it and advice you have for the listeners that are going through that kind of struggle. Um, yeah, I, I was kind of blessed in a way that because I was in the amateur program for as long as I was, I was in the amateur program for over 10 years, maybe closer to 12 years. 
And and um, I, when I finally got the appointment to be a professional referee, um, the very first fight I did was a four-round fight. Um, one of the fighters that was in the fight that I was refereeing, I had refereed back in the amateurs. So I was somewhat comfortable because he was someone that I knew. Um, believe it or not, Paul, the, 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 the very first fight that I did, which when I went to the dressing room, in the amateur program, I don't go into the dressing room and talk to the amateur fighters. It's, it's a, a different ball game. Uh, the, the coaches, the trainers teach the fighters the rules as to our three vocal commands. And But in the professionals, you have to go to the dressing room and go through a list of rules of what you expect of them. I had never done that before. So on my first fight, going to the dressing room. Was I nervous? Oh, yes, I was. And when I went in, I went in with two other referees, my mentor, Richard Steele, and another referee. Now, that made me feel comfortable. But when I gave the rules, I was nervous as a lot, giving the rules to the fighters because they had the red corner fighters in one dressing room and the blue corner fighters in a, a different room. So I get through the rules and I feel uh, 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 comfortable or, or nervous prior to being uh, uh, comfortable uh, in the red dressing room corner and then in the blue dressing room corner. When I got in the ring, I was totally comfortable in going and doing the fight because again, having a fighter that I had refereed before in there and, and with all the years in the amateurs, uh, 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 somewhat made it, made it easy for me. It, it did. And, and uh, as time went on, going to the dressing rooms, got, I got more and more relaxed because I practiced and practiced on what I was going to say when I got to the dressing rooms. Um, was there ever a fight that I, a referee, that I got a little nervous about? Uh, 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 probably uh, my first big super fight. And I got nervous because of what happened during the fight. And that fight was Oscar De La Hoya and Bernard Hopkins. I felt comfortable in what I was doing, but when Bernard Hopkins hit uh, uh, Oscar De La Hoya with a body shot and Oscar De La Hoya went down and I started counting, thinking that Oscar's going to get up and he didn't get up. I'm thinking to myself now, was that a low blow or was it a body shot? So between the time I count Oscar De La Hoya out 
and everybody jumping into the ring, I take a few steps back in my neutral corner and I'm looking at the monitor to see and 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 hope and pray that that fight was a good body shot and not wasn't a low blow. And my eyes uh, 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 did me uh, uh, right because it was a good body shot. And and uh, uh, yeah, that's got to that's probably got to be one of the worst calls to miss as a boxing ref, right? A, a, a shot below the belt, can't miss those, right? Can't miss those. And 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 if they're on the belt line, depending upon where his trunks are. If the trunks are a little high, then those, what I mean by high, above the belly button, uh, we have to let those go because the belly button draws the line between what's low and what's not. So, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I was 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 blessed that I that I got it right. And the other part of that was. I was circling around the backside of Bernard Hopkins when he threw the shot. So I could see him throw the shot, but I wasn't in the right position to see where the shot landed. So that was the other part that, that, that made me a little uneasy when I was counting because, yeah, I didn't get to truly see where that punch landed. What are your best tips for referees to remain calm and composed when the game or the sport that they're refereeing gets very loud and hot? Uh, that's a good question, uh, uh, Paul, because I've been in the arena, um, uh, the, 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 the most recent, well, I won't say the most recent, but I, I did a Manny Pacquiao fight uh, a few years ago and Manny Pacquiao in the first round knocked his opponent down, Keith Thurman. The cheers and the roar was so loud, it was deafening. It was deafening, it was so, so loud. And from my training, and that's where training is so important, um, uh, seminars, the total number of seminars that I have attended in one year is five seminars. And people have asked me, uh, officials have asked me, why do you go to so many seminars? The more, the merrier. The more you hear it over and over and over, the more you see it over and over and over is what will make you feel that more comfortable in what you're doing when that one moment happens that is, is louder than any of the other times that you've ever, ever experienced. You have to keep that calm, that composure, because the eyes of the world is watching you. And because the eyes of the world is watching you, what you do 
what you see and how you respond plays a very important role. You have to remember, we don't get that chance to, to instant replay it. I have to make that call right then. People are watching how many steps I take to do this. They're watching my position. They can rerun it over and over and over. Um, uh, uh, I, 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 I often use this scenario. When I climb into that ring, Paul, it's like if there's 18,000 people in the stands, I'm under the microscope. They're looking down at me to see everything I do, everything. So I have to be on my A game every second of a minute from the first round to the 12th round. I got to be on my A game. I got to block things out when I'm in that ring. I got to block the fans out if I call it low and the fans are booing me, I got to go with what I see with my eyes because they're gonna boo. And when the bell rings and the corner man is saying, come on ref, I got to believe in what and how I've officiated up to that point and I got to stick with it because the corners are gonna complain. I can hear the commentators saying, Oh, the referee Kenny Bates, da 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 da. I can hear them, and I have to keep a focus on what I'm doing because you can easily get distracted. But our training, those seminars, is what gets us through those difficult moments. Appreciate you sharing that. That's great stuff. You ever uh, ejected? a trainer, coach, or corner man, or anyone, threw him out of the building? Um, uh, no, uh, I haven't. Um, I, I can't say that I've gotten close. I've had to direct trainers to, to sit down, go back and sit down. Um, um, I know that it has happened in, 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 in certain fights where uh, trainers have had to have security eject a particular trainer out of the arena because of the things that they were saying. Um, uh, uh, over time, you, you develop a reputation and, and um, uh, be, be, because my work has been clean, um, a lot of, of, of trainers have, will respect me in that manner if I tell them to do something. Uh, usually they'll, they'll do it, and, and, and but I, I've just been blessed. That's something obviously many officials go through is, um, you know, the verbal abuse from coaches, from players, from fans. Um, but I guess I imagine in boxing, they have way less leverage, right? You're going to be just kind of forceful if they're becoming a distraction to the fight. It just seems like there's a way more black and white with boxing like yeah well i'll tell you this paul you bring up a very good point um uh, I, I subscribe to this referee magazine um uh, the referee magazine um can you subscribe to crown refs by the way too 
I didn't know that you guys had a magazine. <laughs> I just wanted to ask you there, throw that out there. But we can talk another time, but keep going. Send me some information on it. I want you on the team is what I'm saying, Kenny. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. I, um, the National Association of Sports Officials. I don't know if you heard heard of them, but I've been a member for a few years now, and they have very good articles in there. Uh, I, I I usually kind of lean toward uh, um, uh, which I've never had an issue with, but I know uh, basketball, football. Uh, and some baseball have had issues with with angry fans. Matter of fact, in the Referee Magazine, um, which is a monthly uh, uh, subscription, I can almost read a situation where fans have gotten into altercations with with referees physically, which is, is, is sad that that's the direction. And I'm talking about high school, uh, 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 Pop Warner, where fans are verbal abusing the, the officials and saying unkind things. And it's like, are you kidding me? I mean, Pop Warner football, uh, uh, junior varsity basketball, but it, it's like an ongoing thing where I've read articles to where they're trying to up what the charges are going to be to these individuals, these parents that are running, meeting the, 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 the official at the car to want to verbally cuss them out and 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 say the things that they say it's it's like it's like a nightmare but it 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 you know it 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 happens and it and and, and to me Paul it seems like it's getting worse Well, listen, that's why it's so important that we're doing what we're doing here and we're uniting and forming communities, you know, to be able to to share best practices and all build our principles together so we can go out on the fields and the courts and in the rings and execute this together at the same time. And that's exactly so. right. You're exactly right. Yeah. The more, and that's, like I said, the, the seminars, I, I, I've uh, spoken many seminars, uh, but but if if I'm not speaking in the seminar, I'm a student of, of the seminar. And, and, and like I said, people have said, um, people have said, uh, yeah, why, why, why do you attend them? Because I, I'm never too old to learn, that's why. Never too old to learn. Got to be lifelong learners in this. Yeah. Well, and also our, our job um, uh, for me is like a part-time job, but it's a full-time position. Um, uh, though, though I'm an independent contractor and I only uh, officiate when I get called 
doesn't mean that that I'm going to still educate myself so that I can be the best that I can be uh, when I'm out there because, uh, you know, the, the athletes, they train hard to do what they do. And, and, and uh, we're there to be our very best for them. Kenny, um, financial question, career question here. Were you able, I would imagine you were able to make this your full-time career. And at what point, if so, did you, did you retire or quit for whatever you were doing to go all in on being, becoming a hall of fame boxing referee? Yeah, no, I, I uh, retired from teaching school back in 2007. I taught in, here in the Clark County School District for 35 years. So you've been double and triple dipping this whole time. That's, That's what we do. Right. Yeah, just grinding I, I, away. I not quit my teaching job to, to be a referee because being a referee would not pay the bills. Like, you know, an NFL referee, that's all they do. Or NBA referee between the, the season and then the 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 postseason and and what they make. I mean, I've heard numbers, and I don't know how correct it is that a a, a top level NFL uh, 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 umpire or referee could make close to a hundred thousand. I don't know. So there's no full time boxing referees then, huh? No. It's very surprising. No. Wow, even a guy like yourself, who's one of the the legends of the sport. Do you think that'll ever pave a way to in the future? No, no. Why is that? In the contractors, if the if the promoter chooses to bring a fight to Las Vegas, then there's a chance I have to work it. If they choose to take that fight to California or Arizona or New York or anywhere else, I have no control of it. The, 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 25 uh, uh, years ago, uh, we were blessed in, in, in Las Vegas and up in uh, Reno to have as many as two, maybe three fight cards a month. We not, we're not getting them like that anymore. We used to get them like that, but we don't get them like that anymore. There are people that are judges that, uh, and referees that 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 uh, are attorneys that are that are uh, uh, dentists or um, um, work in real estate insurance business. They all got their own particular se separate jobs. The boxing is just something on the side. You gotta love it. You gotta love it. That's exactly right, Paul. You gotta love it. You got time for one more? Yes, sir. Um, there was significant mayhem in your last fight when you refereed Mayweather and Gotti in the exhibition where you stopped the fight in the sixth. It almost turned into a riot. Could you walk us through what happened and yeah. uh, why you made the decision to stop the fight? Yes, I, I, um, I'm a student of the game and I know before the fight, Gotti was making accusations, ugly accusations on what he was going to do to 
uh, Floyd Mayweather. This is an exhibition fight. Exhibition fight. So I go into Gotti's dressing room and I said, this is an exhibition fight. You gave him the line, of course, too, right? Oh, yes. I told him. I said, look, you're to go out there and show your skills and have some fun. That's what an exhibition fight is. And I said it to him because he was, I'm going to kick his, and I'm going to be, and I'm going to, and he's using all this verbal stuff on what he's going to do. I go to Mayweather's dressing room. I say the same thing to him. Look. It's an exhibition. Well, Floyd Mayweather knows it's an exhibition. He knows it's all show. And he knows that he's going to give the crowd something to, to, to see and enjoy. So during the fight, I don't know if you watched the fight, Paul, but the first two rounds, Gotti didn't do anything. He covered up and just let Mayweather hit him. He backed to the ropes and just let Mayweather just hit him, which wasn't exciting at all. In the third round, Mayweather comes out and he just stands there covered up and he lets Gotti throw punches, which creates some excitement. Which at that time, uh, a time uh, uh, Mayweather would, would, would back over, look out of the ring and start talking to people, which I knew was irritating Gotti because Floyd Mayweather is about the show. It's an exhibition. So I could see that Gotti was getting a little frustrated from it because he started using some verbal language in the ring, which I won't repeat. And I kept cautioning him to stop with the mouth. And which he continued to do and continued to do. And then when he would hold Mayweather, I would, asked him to break, and he would extend the hole longer at the same time using verbal, ugly language. It got to the point to where Mayweather started exchanging. And now both of them are talking, using a, a, a language that I continue to caution them on. Uh, uh, in, in one of the rounds, I had mentioned that I was going to stop it if, it, if if you didn't stop with the language, stop with the holding. Well, leading up to the sixth round, I go to Gotti's corner and I say, look, enough is enough. Stop with the language. If you don't, I'm going to stop it. Their trainer was talking to me about other issues, which had nothing to do with what I was telling him. That's what coaches do. They 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 try to use that opportunity to complain about something else when you went up and initiated the conversation. Yes. Exactly, exactly, Paul. I go over to Mayweather. I say to Mayweather, "Look, if this doesn't stop, I'm gonna stop the fight." I go back. The bell rings. 
the two approaches each other. And the first thing God, he says to Mayweather before he even throws a punch is F you. And then the proverbial language started again. I let it go and up until they got into a clinch and then it continued. And at that point I had enough. And I stopped it. It's so bad for the game, right? It's so bad for the sport there. You, you know, you, you, you gave them way uh, enough. You gave them enough space. You were very lenient and they were not complying on any level. It was just constant disrespect. It's an exhibition and there's unsportsmanlike disrespect going on. It's so off, so inappropriate. Yes. And it, it was sad. I mean, I, I, I had to do what I felt I had to do because I gave them enough warnings. I gave them enough cautions and it continued. And um, yeah, I just wasn't going to, to uh, put myself in the position of, of, it, of it getting worse um, uh, because what was happening there was, was was enough but but that's why i stopped and just to go back to what i was saying before you know with basketball officials sometimes we have to go bring information to a coach maybe about a player about a situation and what they like to do in that moment let's say we gave the player a technical foul instead of or me um trying to manage the the player coach i've had to speak to your player could you please talk to him and instead of them acknowledging that information they change it and try to change the narrative so we as officials have to be firm there we have yes. to stay consistent and almost you're almost cutting them off in a respectful manner do not let them send any more messages because this interacted interaction started because we're trying to enforce the rules and safety so we have primary Exactly. And I've, and I've said, you know, if, if I've made mistakes in the ring, we're not perfect, but we try to be as close to perfect as possible for the sake of the athletes. And it, I mean, I, I apologize to, to Manny Pacquiao in a fight because um, I thought that he had got knocked down and was the, if the, the punch was more of a push. So I'm wrong. I apologize. He said, Kenny, those things happen. We don't need to elaborate or beat it up because I know I missed the call, but but I'm not going to miss too many calls. If it's just blowing smoke, then that's how they'll see you as a referee, just blowing smoke. They know I mean what I say. Kenny, I got one more question for you. Pedro uh, had bad service. He wants to know with the uptick of fights in women's basketball, are there any tips Kenny may have on breaking up fights or techniques on how to break up fights while protecting yourself? I think you'd be the guy to ask that. In the WNBA? Just, I think he's speaking generally women's basketball overall. Basketball, um... Let's say women's and men's. Let's say it's both. It's both. It's both uh, men's and women's. You know? Yeah. I um, when 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 a fight starts, 
um, as an official, you react. And you react because what's happening, you want to shut it down as quick as possible. Because the longer it lingers, the worse it gets. Um, I guess it's second nature to me um, uh, as far as positioning. And because it's kind of rare for NBA officials when it comes to, to, to fights, you hope that your verbal command will do more to help and, 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 and shut it down, a verbal command. If they're already kind of throwing uh, 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 punches, um, you know, you're talking about if it's men, Chuck should maybe be talking six five, six seven, six eight, six ten. Yeah, that's that's a tough one to do. Two fifty, two sixty. Um, uh, And I've always said this, Paul, football players, baseball players, basketball players, any other sport than boxing, they don't know how to fight. They're just in there swinging and wailing because they don't know how to fight. They haven't gone to a gym and practiced how to throw a jab or to slip a punch or none of that. They're just wailing. And for, so for the safety of the official, you have to be mindful of that when you go in. Don't just run in there for the sake of running in. Have a little tack in your movement entering so that if they throw a, a, a wild punch, you can step in and grab and hold and prevent them from doing any more. It's, 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 it's a tough one. It is. But but um, uh, uh, I would say be mindful how you approach it because you got other players out there as well and they may get involved in it. Um, um, yeah, it's a tough one for you guys. It's tough. Kenny, Kenny, thank you for your time today. It was really interesting hearing you share your wisdom and um, yeah, just just to hear thoughts from a Hall of Fame referee of, of any sport is is amazing. Do us one last favor before you go, or are there any last and final thoughts you have for our dedicated audience of officials that are listening now? Um, the last thing I would say to any officials, and I don't care what sport it is, bring your A game to every event and and never feel that you're too old to attend seminars to continue to better yourself. Do it as much and as often as you can. And, and uh, if it's doing it in groups of other officials or just yourself as an individual, do as much of it as you can. Thank you for listening to the Crown Refs Podcast. Serve the game.